Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. Welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. My name is Keisha and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. We thank everybody in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroyo pricing, although you are always welcome to book a demo to get more on that. Uh, feel free to type your questions in the chat at any time. If your question is selected, we'll ask you to unmute yourself and you can feel free to ask away. Plus, as a special treat, we're sending an Arroya hat to anyone who asks a question during today's live session. So that's pretty exciting. Jason, Seth, you ready for our first question from Instagram? Sure. Let's yeah, get let's us started. It. Hey, excellent. All right. So Stealth LED wants to know, for a 10-week strain, when would be the average time to switch to generative at the end of flower? So for a 10-week strain, um, I mean, kind of our general rule for Switching on uh, steering techniques is keeping an eye on your plant height. Uh, so if you have run that strain before, make sure that you are making manual readings, doing some crop registration as far as your plant height goes. Get an idea of its stretching timeline. Um, you get an idea of when you ideally are hitting your flower. Hopefully that's on your pro uh, projected production schedule. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's still going to be strain dependent as far as the exact right time goes. Uh, if you are transplanted and you've got rooted into your final media volume, then usually we'll talk about uh, about hitting generative steering pretty pretty much the same time that you're flipping to flower. Um, and depending on that strain, you know, running two to four or five weeks of, of generative steering. Um, usually for ten week strains, you know, they're they're going to be a little bit more of the sativa timelines, um, not finishing up quite as fast, but. Uh, that's kind of our general recommendations. Seth, would you yeah, go with? I think you nailed it. I mean, just doing your crop registration, making sure you've got that data to show like, all right, we're stretching really rapidly. Now it's slowing down and it's stopped. So if you're taking it once a week, it's going to be harder to nail that exact day count than if you're taking it every other day or every day, plant height that is. Yeah, exactly. And we always like to recommend um, taking your plant heights on the same plants that you have sensors on. That way you're kind of pairing up um, the, the same data. So you can see the, the root zone per performance um, and making sure that that is correlated to the same plant that you're taking some of those crop registration numbers on. Yep, I think you nailed it. I mean, it's a one or 10,000 kind of number is the way I look at it. So if we're only doing it off of 25 plants on a bench or something like that, we're not getting statistically significant data if we're randomly sampling there. So it's almost to the point, that's why we take node spacing too. You can look at plant height and then look at your node spacing. When your node spacing is still stretching, you see those new nodes becoming shorter and shorter. You can really time the end of your stretch and start to go into bulking. Great, excellent. Okay, so we have our next question. He comes from Kush, Kush Enthusiast. They want to know, when hand watering, what should I be aiming for in order to steer vegetatively? And they also ask the same question for generatively. Ooh, hand watering. I'm going to stay out of this one and let you do it. <laughs> uh, my biggest question would be, do you have a day job? Because that's, if you're hand watering and you have any si kind of sizable grow, you know, even above 500 or 1,000 square feet, that's what you're going to be doing all day to steer vegetatively. 
and you it probably can't be that big because you're going to be needing to hit those plants every hour or less depending on you know how quickly they're drying back and how small of a shot you're trying to apply so the answer for vegetatively would be you need to be there all day uh, if you're hand watering trying to go generative that's a lot easier to accomplish we can kind of dial our pot size so that we have that short irrigation window can hold water till the next day but you're not going to be successful going vegetatively with hand watering unless you can be there and watching your graph and go all right it dried back one percent i'm going to go hit it again but even then you're going to run into problems with uh, washing all the ec out of your pot most likely because it's going to be very difficult for you to apply water in the range of you know 100 to 150 milliliters to each plant yeah so just to i mean use some general metrics there say if we're irrigating a thousand plants by hand um, it might take three or four hours in the morning um, those plants to be properly steering vegetatively are already going to need to be irrigated before you're done irrigating and then if we've got a, um, a strain that we really need to push on vegetative it might be a eight or ten hour um, irrigation window so first to last irrigation um, so that that that's a really significant portion of your day or maybe even more than the entire um, working period just uh, just trying to irrigate so Obviously, on a smaller scale, some of that hand watering can happen, but uh, anybody that does ROI on irrigation systems, on fertigation automation, is going to find that lower flow drip rates um, are going to help the consistency across your room. They're going to be one of the essential parameters uh, to start crop steering effectively. Yep, you nailed it, dude. And I think uh, we can both attest we've drug hoses around the same place watering a thousand plants, and it does take all morning. <laughs> The three hours is no joke. And then go back and do it again in the afternoon to try to keep up. It's just, it's a challenge. That's the best way to put it. It's a big challenge. Sounds like a full-time job. Just the water. Very much. Yeah. Okay. And just a reminder to the folks who are on with us today, please feel free to type any questions you have in the chat for your chance to ask the experts live. I have another question from Instagram, and I know I'm probably going to mangle this person's handle, but Akecha Gian wants to know, as far as drybacks go, what's the ideal range you want to be at during the flowering cycle? Uh, it's a very general question. You know, usually we're trying to break that out down into different phases. So that's the basis of how we like to crop stairs, talking about a harvest group of uh, a whole bunch of different phases, um, usually at least four um, to get started with. So maybe if you're not in your final media yet, you can do some uh, some initial rooting in, uh, which obviously those drybacks are going to be dependent on um, your substrate size, uh, how how well rooted you are at that point. Um, it's kind of a very specific type of, of action that we're trying to get those roots to seek out water content and engulf the entire volume of the media. Um, for generative steering, drybacks in, you know, say the 15 to 30%, maybe a little bit more if you're pushing really, really hard in something like rock wool. Um, cocoa can be a little bit less. And, and that's always, you know, with our consideration of assumed appropriate substrate size. So, you know, if we're in, say, a substrate that's too large, it's going to be very difficult to achieve those drybacks. Your dryback is just a combination of simply two values, right? And that's going to be evaporation and transpiration. Um, in this case, we're just going to talk about transpiration. If our plant is drinking, say, three quarters of a gallon of water a day, and we're in a three-gallon media, uh, it, 
you're definitely going to see quite a bit less dryback. So the numbers that we're mentioning are usually with an assumed perfect size substrate. So if you are growing quite a bit bigger plants, sure, that might be a slightly larger substrate. Uh, if you're doing like a scrog or a multi-tier shorter plants, um, you know, you'll, you'll see a little bit smaller substrate if you're trying to steer really appropriately. And then maybe for vegetative, you know, we could talk about 10 to 20% drybacks and something like rockwell slabs with appropriate size plants. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, going into flowering, I like to hit a 5 to 10% dryback before I really attempt much steering. Because if we just keep the medium too wet, we're not going to get anywhere with that. Um, and then I look at dryback as an overall measure of like how healthy those plants are and how well they're transpiring. If we put a solid value on that number um, and gave you a recipe and said, all right, you need a 20% dryback at this point anytime you run any plant, that's going to vary according to like what you're actually able to achieve in environmental control. And also, as Jason said, it has everything to do with pot size. So if we've got a tiny plant in a big pot, we don't expect as much dryback. Now, is that going to be an indicator of how healthy the plant is? A little bit, but, you know, over the years, we've definitely known you can grow a five-foot plant in a three-and-a-half-gallon cocoa pot and run it super generatively the whole time, and you just won't get as big of a plant. You won't have the yield. So... And a few more other considerations in there as well as, um, you know, regarding environment. Anytime before you begin getting serious about crop steering, it's best practice to make environment checks. You know, can you, can you provide the stability of climate for those plants to do projectable, appropriate drybacks that you're looking for? And so when we talk about things that are usually influencing stomatal conductance and overall transpiration rate in the plant, let's talk about, you know, VPD. So uh, we've got a target temperature range. Are you hitting your target temperature range? And then checking your VPD to make sure that you're keeping the humidity appropriate for that temperature in the room. Uh, that's going to optimize um, the stomatal opening um, and try and increase the growth rate of that plant. Another thing to kind of keep in mind as well is um, CO2. CO2 is actually going to increase the water use efficiency of our plant. So if we're not injecting CO2, we're going to see... Um, higher drybacks, a little bit um, higher transpiration rate. But if we inject the appropriate amount of CO2, then we'll be providing um, the right amount of, of all inputs for that plant to be as efficient as possible, which actually means that um, you know, the transpiration rate is going to be a little bit less simply because it doesn't have to pull through nearly as much water and nutrients to equalize, um, or it doesn't have to pull through nearly as much CO2. So we're not um, absorbing quite as much transpiration. There's not as much gas exchange in the plant and it can grow the same amount. So that the target there is really the highest photosynthetic rate um, possible for any given environment. So also kind of comes into trying to only play with one variable at a time to make comparisons. Um, so uh, got a little advanced there, but uh, I think we hit the basics. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Great. Our next question comes from Michael, who's on with us today. Michael, uh, feel free to unmute yourself and go ahead and ask away. And if you have any tech issues, I'd be happy to ask. Um, I'll go ahead and ask for him here. Michael wants to know, uh, what incoming EC is your personal favorite to deal with and what pH do you prefer? Well, it's good to have you on here, Mike. Um, it's nice to see you active in this uh, incoming EC and pH. So if you mean what type of uh, feed line EC uh, and pH, uh, something for 
Rockwell, you know, being in that five, five to five, seven is a, a great range to keep nutrient solubility, um, as equalized as possible. So, you know, for anyone that's watching that, that hasn't looked up, um, pH charts for different types of substrates, I feel free, uh, to Google it. I encourage you guys to check out how your nitrogens, how your phosphorus is, how all of that is going to be absorbed at a little bit different rates, depending on the pH. And so for something like rock wool, shooting for that, say five, five to five, seven is a really good range for your pH. Uh, if you're doing uh, a cocoa, it's going to be a little bit more dependent on manufacturer, um, just because the, the makeup of that product can be slightly variant from manufacturer to manufacturer, but being in that uh, usually 5.8 to say 6.0 range would be what I like for cocoa. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it there, dude. I was going to say feeding 3.0 at a 5.6 for rock is perfect. And I'll still go 3.0, but more like a 5.8 cocoa, just because I have a little bit of cation exchange capacity there, and that cocoa can actually hold on to some ions. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> Did I? Did anyone miss anything there? Was I too quiet? I can't hear myself with these headphones on. Uh, well, we'll throw some justifications in there. Um, <laughs> Seth was saying, you know, three O um, and Rockwell for EC levels. I, I do like to also consider um, one nutrient manufacturer and composition. So some of those plants are going to eat a little bit differently depending on the specific blend uh, that you're using. Uh, another factor in there is obviously strain. I mean, I know we're saying it all the time, but this is why we love databasing growth cycles is because those strains definitely prefer different parameters as far as environment, as far as feed levels, um, steering strategies, probably on the top of that list. And so, you know, the better you can document how your plants respond um, by variation, by variety to to your feed levels is, is a good way to optimize them. Um, another, another thing in there is thinking about uh, your light source. So usually with something like LED, we'll run a little bit higher EC. Uh, simply that's because when we look at uh, leaf surface temperature, when we're looking at how that plant is, is feeding, when we're running uh, LEDs, usually we're going to have a little, bit, um, a little bit less water uptake. And so our nutrient concentration needs to be slightly higher in order to provide the same amount of nutrition to that plant. Yeah, you nailed it. We don't have the leaf surface temp to bring it up and drive that metabolism there and transpiration. So little less pull on the plant from water below and we want to keep that concentration in there with the ec michael clarified here he added a one more comment pith versus chunk versus strand know if there's anything else you want to say on that yummy we love cocoa <laughs> choose your chop what do you like wetter or drier it's <laughs> a great question michael <laughs> yeah sorry seth did i interrupt you oh i was just gonna say i like to you know get Basically, a lot of companies out there now are kind of having a good mix. If you go with the more chunk, you're going to end up with a little drier cocoa. And then, uh, personally, I like running a cocoa that'll get me up to 55 to 65% you know, volumetric water content. That way, I have a good range to steer in. If I'm running like a cocoa perlite mix and I can only achieve 38 or 43% you know, max water content, um, I've limited myself to my ability to steer and how long I can actually stretch out that generative steering because I only have so much water reservoir in there now. Wonderful. Uh, Michael, yeah, thank you so much for asking your question. Be sure to stick around after the broadcast so I can get your contact info and get you an Aurora hat. Our next uh, question comes from Turp Turtle Farms, who's on with us today. You want to go ahead and unmute yourself? And if you're having any trouble, let me know. I know connection issues and heck. <laughs> 
I'll just uh, read what he wrote here. In week six on strains, I run. Oh, there he is. Go for it. Hey, how's it going? Good, dude. Hey, I'm I'm running uh, six-inch Hugos for the first time. I've never run the Rockwell. I've always been a Coco guy. And uh, I have a sensor in each table. One table, um, even with three, I'm I'm feeding P2 feeds into the dark cycle in P3. So on... After the lights go out, they're still getting hit one more time on the hour, three more times, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and I'm still seeing, I mean, one started drying back so so bad I got channeling. Uh, I mean, it only maxes out at about 55% water content. Mm-hmm. The other one, the slurricane, I mean, it hits 71, 72% at, at runoff and at max content. And it's still, it's still hitting, even with those three night feeds, 41% by light, um, by lights on plus two hours, you know? Sure. So, yeah, usually when we're seeing this, uh, you're growing a pretty big plant um, and it's, it's growing aggressively. So you're running out of substrate volume. Uh, that plant is pulling more water than you can appropriately steer. And so that's why you are running into your dark periods. We always try to irrigate no later than the, um, you know, about an hour or two hours before lights off. And obviously in your case, you're doing what you have to to maintain um, some amount of plant health, but this is where you know you might consider um, going into a slab next time. So like a four by four. Yeah, next, for, for sure next for, yeah. for sure next run. But I mean, so as far as keeping this run, they still the plants still look great. But what I just keep riding out, adding P threes, adding night feeds into the P three cycle. I, I think that's going to be your option. Yeah, okay. I, this is kind of one of the challenges. Um, uh, you know, of steering with without a substrate that's appropriately sized or the perfect size is yeah. simply because now rather than irrigating based on how you're trying to control the morphology of that plant you're irrigating to just keep water levels uh, keep up with sufficient it, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so so then my why that sensor is only getting up to 55 percent is that's because it just dried down too hard too many times and it won't reach max water content because i can wait till i'm I'm at full saturation for the day, which for that sensor is 55, 56%. Mm-hmm. And then I hand well, I can hand water on top of the cubes and I can get them up to about 60, 61. But then, you know, within a day, they're right. They're really maxing out at 55 again. Yeah, it it is likely, you know, usually when we see um, field capacities in rock bowl under that, say, 65 or 75 um, percent that's that's the usual range that we see field capacity for um, a well-maintained rock wool uh, you know it could be probably the two most common would be um, sensor placement so make sure that you are using that uh, sensor alignment tool at the the right right height yeah, in that could. block and then the other could be you know some some establishment of, of channeling um, or irrigation flow through mm-hmm. yeah absolutely also if you ever had a dry down event that went below 40 percent for a decent amount of time you could have a hydrophobic pocket in there and if you hit one of your tines into that pocket, that's going to throw off your average across the three. Yeah, so for sure. There's oh. a few factors that could be a problem there. Did you grow in like one gallon cocoa soft pots, like the biochars or anything like that? Yeah, they were one gallon. Co- I was one, yeah. running one gallon cocoa before that. Yeah. One thing that's kind of odd about switching to the Hugos is you don't get that same air pruning effect. So with rock wool, we're focusing on that suspended water table in the bottom two to three inches of the media. So when we go to that slab, we actually effectively expand that area where the plant can take up water. With those cocoa bags, we had air pruning going on where the roots were going out, splitting, splitting. We had greater absorption through the whole block. Now we're just focused on that bottom three inches. So 
if you go to like a six inch Hugo, you're really only using that bottom couple inches where, you know, cohesion overcomes gravity. The water stops falling out of the block and that's where it's most concentrated. Fortunately, what makes rock wool great is that's where your plants also up uptake all their water at their root tips. So a Hugo, no. it's hard to flower a big plant out of towards the end, basically. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, learned you've that. Seen it. <laughs> I learned that. I learned that the hard way, and <laughs> for sure, yeah. I'm gonna have to stick slabs under them. So, what? How? What's the max dryback I can see before I'm running into channeling? Like, what's the ride in the line there? We just try to stay, you know, above absolutely no lower than 35 percent, but trying to stay above 40 percent for something like a Hugo. Yep, give yourself that five percent buffer. You know, even yeah. if you're in cocoa, if you could get up to 55, I'd say call 25 your bottom end because invariably you're going to wake up some mornings and check that graph when you get to work and it's going to be uh, so, a so fuel it is dip a down lower than you wanted. <laughs> so it is a sliding scale like that. If I'm maxing out at 55, I would drop to 20. You'd still call that a 25% dry bath? Not or on the rock wool or the cocoa really is it sliding, but yeah, to an extent, like we have our absolute bottoms on every media that we don't want to go below. Otherwise we're going to yeah. see yield reduction. Water is always one of your key yield limiting components. You know, if you're 10% low on your water content for 10 days in your grow, that's a significant amount of water and time that you deprive that plant of. Yeah. I think what, one of the things that Seth was getting to there is that um, rock, rock wool is, it's probably, probably a little bit more susceptible to some of that channeling not that cocoa isn't but when we look at um when we look at the uh matrix potential curves of rock wool versus cocoa the matrix potential curve in rock wool is very linear so it, it still doesn't apply almost any um irrigation stressors to the plant even when you are getting lower in water content so that that plant can pull that block to almost to zero without necessarily feeling um an irrigation deficit if, if we use terminology from uh, traditional horticulture whereas cocoa it's actually going to start applying a little bit more pressure as we drop down into say that 25 um, percent area and so that, that's kind of where we're drawing those lines at is where where is a safe spot that uh, that media can recover its intended properties or it's uh, it's it's naturally um, best operating parameters if you will so then if you're if that if that Hugo, the six inch Hugo is it is running in ideal conditions, what is the max you want that thing drinking a day before you'd say, Hey, I really have to go into slabs, I don't have a choice next time? P threes. <laughs> if you're there, you can't maintain a generative dryback. That means you either need a smaller plant or a bigger reservoir of water to draw from. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So if, that's, yeah, that's a good line. And Honestly, I, we see it all the time, people hitting trouble, you know, finishing on Hugo's just because of that. You know, you get a big, beautiful plant that's grown real aggressively, done real well, and then at the end, it's just really hard to apply that generative stress and really up your potency and ripen it. Yeah. It, and to be honest, like when I switched from 3.5-gallon three, pots back in the day to one-gallon cocoa pots, same thing happened the first round. Grew them way too big. <laughs> I had to put water on them all day just to keep them from dying. And yeah, then I mean, the next time we figured it out, like flower them smaller, match their plant to the pot size, and we won't run into that issue quite as hard. So, to, I mean, to rego generative at the end, it'd be next to impossible. I'd be dragging them back to all, it'd be all kinds of crazy. Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. The best you can do is try to, you know, give as much space in between irrigations as possible, like your P1 and your P2s. Stretch that out. 
because really what we're doing, we're not applying drought stress in the traditional sense. We're making it hard for the plant to uptake water. We're just spacing out those irrigation signals. We're not telling it to grow all day. It's not raining all day. Yeah. It's not springtime for the plant anymore. Yeah. Awesome. Turb Turtle, thank you so much for bringing this up. We had a great conversation. And awesome. No, thank you guys so much. <laughs> yeah, no, be sure to stick around. Of course, let us know if you have any other questions. Um, I just wanted to share Michael's comments uh, in the chat here. He also is a proponent of slabs. He wrote, they really help with rock wool. I found it very difficult to run without them. We're finding the, the Botanicare 6x6 cocoa cubes are working really well to steer under HPS and LED, a mix of strand and chunk. Yeah, so great to hear uh, what's working for cultivators in this space. Um, I have another question from Instagram while we, uh, as we continue on here. This one comes from Kush Pops. In the middle of flowering, if drybacks are too large for P3, can you give shots in the middle of the night? I, I think we hit that one with uh, Terp Troller here just a, just a minute ago. We usually always try to avoid night irrigations um, if we can. If we have to do night irrigations, it's usually a good signal that our substrate um, volume is too small for the size of plant that uh, we're growing at that point. So um, I think we've got that one checked off. Another thing, too, if you find yourself having to apply P3s, um, being able to log your overnight humidity and VPD is also super helpful. Like if you, it's pretty rare. Most people experience the humidity going up at night because your lights go off, temperatures go down, the equation changes, your RH goes up. If, however, you're one of the few people that experience it the other way and your humidity just drops out at night, your dryback's going to happen a lot faster overnight than you want just due to evaporation and pulling that water up into the air. So it's it's a delicate balance. If you're trying down too hard, that's something you want to check too is make sure your VPD is in range and stable overnight. Big swings uh, really affect that dryback curve. Great. Okay. River City Growers submitted this next question. They're asking, what are some key points you guys hit when uh, coming to the last week of flower? Key points? Uh, are they just looking for like tips on ripening strategies? I'm thinking, yeah, keep maybe some metrics or some, some data points that they're looking, should be looking out for. So, I mean, some of the obvious ones is, you know, try to have an understanding of the appropriate timeline for that strain. So that's being, you know, documenting, um, your trichome colors towards the end per cultivar so that you can make sure that you're allocating the appropriate amount of production time for that type of strain. And, and then obviously, uh, if you do have that expectation set up, then, you know, keep an eye on, on terpene profiles, keep an eye on your leaf colorations, all that types of stuff. So, you know, ripening strategies, I like to apply at the appropriate time for each strain, things like some increased nighttime, daytime differentials, uh, help produce anthocyanins, get as much color out of that plant as it can express. Um, and then also, you know, for, for ripening, we can drop our, our feed EC, um, sometimes, you know, a quarter, um, drop to a half drop and, uh, save a little bit of nutrients. Um, as long as we're pushing a really good generative signal to that plant to make sure it ripens up, uh, as much as we can get for that product. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Um, the only thing I'd add is go buy yourself a loop. That's got a little tiny ruler inside of it. They exist. You can start looking at your trichome sizes, which is pretty cool. Cause run to run, you can start trying to optimize how sparkly that bud looks and see some of those results. The other thing, like as Jason was saying, you can drop your EC. And one of the biggest things to watch out for when you do that 
and you know, I, I do know a lot of people like to just straight flush anymore, is now that you're using Arroyo, you can see that root zone EC. So if you're flushing really hard and you're just pushing EC out of the bottom, you are, it's not starving the plant because we look at that more like vitamins than actual food for it. But we want those buds to be as healthy as possible when harvest comes around. You know, I've seen it a lot of times where people will pull down a beautiful crop and three days later they've got botrytis in the hanging room, in the dry room. Part of that could be dry room conditions. Some of it is that we live in a world with mold spores flying around everywhere. Unless you have a HIPAA filter in that room 24-7, you're going to have those. So if you go in with a plant that has weakened cells inside the bud, that's a point where mold can germinate and hit. Yeah, it, it's kind of why I really try to avoid the term flushing um, where we're at in the industry nowadays. Um, just because I think um, historically connotation, a lot of people have different ideas on what flushing means. Um, and that that's kind of specifically an uh, it's an activity, whereas ripening is kind of the terminology I like to apply for that last, say, five to seven days, maybe a little longer on a on a long-running strain. But that's a goal, right? We're trying to ripen as a goal. How you get there can be a little bit different depending on on um, what type of plant you're running, what uh, what environment you've got, what substrate you've got, and what uh, what terpene profile you're shooting for, um, that, that color of those trichomes. Um, Etc. So that's that's one reason I definitely like to um, call it ripening instead, is because uh, you know from our our experience running straight RO can do exactly what Seth was saying. And so sure you can decrease your nutrients, but uh, going for a going for a flush as the goal is uh, something I I personally like to try and avoid. Great. And uh, let me read Michael's comments here. Uh, USB microscopes are fantastic for checking your finish. So he wanted to also add that to the conversation. They're great. Plus you get actual pictures with those. Pretty rad. Yeah. And so great way to attribute that from cycle to cycle and by strain is throw that in as a, a note in uh, the Roya system or task somebody on your team to to take some trichome pictures uh, in there, take some finishing pictures, get an idea of what those leaf colors look like and uh, dial in how many days specifically you need for that plant and how many days you want to be doing ripening activities. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right. We've got another question here from Instagram. This one comes from Shark Mouse Farms. They want to know, is there any literature or data to suggest that initiating your generative cues will shorten time from transition to 12-hour light schedule to reproductive development, assuming everything is dialed in correctly. I flipped three separate genotypes from three separate breeders, and all are showing defined pistol development four days in. Thoughts on that? So using generative steering to promote flowering. Um, we're definitely putting a little bit of drought stress on the plant. Like, let's say you sprouted a seed and went 12-12, you're already putting it right away into those flowering conditions and kind of avoiding veg. But cannabis is still a photoperiod plant, so that generative stress might speed it up a little bit. Um, but over-applying, it's going to affect your yield at a certain point. This is where the, the target plant height going in per strain is really the best metric to calculate when you should be starting flower and um, some of that generative stuff because uh, we want to veg out as fast as possible for so for the plant growth to be as effective overall as we need we want to make sure we're getting the 
the vegetative plant organs, the structures that are stems, stalks, and leaves, we want to get those built up as absolute fast as possible during the veg 18.6, or some people run 24 on, but 18.6 is pretty unanimous. So we want to get those, um, those vegetative, the infrastructure of the plant growing as fast as possible. So that's why we do usually recommend veg steering during 18.6 is establishing the basis to encourage plant growth or, or flower growth. Um, so get that plant set up, get it the infrastructure that it needs to build as many buds as possible. Then we'll induce the the bud sites, you know, get those node sites stacked up as quick as possible during our, our generative. Um, and then after that plant's been been signaled to be as reproductive as it can, then we'll we'll let it live out the rest of its life um, some bulking. So get that uh, get those reproductive sites, those buds, those flowers established, and then bulk them out as much as possible through the remainder of the cycle. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a big thing we look at here is crop steering, optimizing plant health at every part of the cycle. When we stress the plant too much, we're, you know, we're basically delaying growth. We're going to impact how quickly it's metabolizing. Along with what Jason said, if you are, uh, let's say, topping in veg, one thing you'll notice, the plant stalls out. All right, that gives us more time in veg. That adds more to our total cycle, longer turnaround time. So what's our potential solution? Not topping, flipping the plant a little earlier and potentially upping our density. All right, that allows that plant to not take up as much square footage per or during its life cycle in our facility. So all those plants got to pay their rent, right? Nothing's free inside your farm. So anytime we have to fight the plant, we're losing money and time. So the idea is we really want to optimize everything we can for the plant and steer it not necessarily fight it. And that's the same, you know, if we're going to talk about like D-leafs or anything we do, every action you put on that plant costs time and money. So we want to, again, maximize growth at every point, minimize work we put in and not fight the plant. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point, Seth, because when we do talk about, you know, crop steering, we're, we're modulating parameters around a balance, right? And so if we had a balance, then that plant is going to, express its morphology based on um, having a equalized pressure from either side of, of where we're trying to grow, right? And so really, you know, when we say generative or vegetative, there are degrees, there's an intensity to it, it's a vector. So we're looking at a, a steering direction and a steering intensity. And obviously if we take things too far, whether it with the environment or with irrigation, Either way, we're going to be fighting that plant again, which is going to be counterproductive. So it is talking about using the right steering direction for the appropriate amount of time at the right intensity. Great. Um, just a reminder to the folks who are on with us today, feel free to type your question in the chat for a chance to get it answered live. Um, but I do have a, a two-part question here that Gas House Gardens submitted. Let me start with part one, and I summarized a little bit of it here. When stacking EC in the block, can we still achieve runoff to maintain proper nutrient solution? They go on to describe a no runoff scenario where the plant is actively taking up certain nutrients more quickly while other nutrients are taken on passively. The passively uptake of nutrients are building up in the block more than the active ones. So this person is wondering if while building EC, should they compensate for those active nutrients to maintain proper ratios during stretch and ripening? If you can, 
I so mean, it's, yeah, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And yeah. fortunately, nutrient blends out there have significantly improved um, over the number of years, and, and cannabis producers do have better accessibility to to well balanced nutrients. Um, that being said, obviously, uh, it sounds like you guys are probably doing uh, leaf tissue sample analysis to try and get an idea of what that imbalance looks like. It is a good approach to try and keep that balance right. So uh, keep an eye on the runoff pH. Uh, and that runoff pH is, a, is an easy way on site to kind of keep track of the, the runoff balance of nutrients, right? So if the plant's taking up a little bit more of the um, negatively charged uh, nutrient ions, then you're going to see a pH rise and, and vice versa on that. So that's a good way to kind of kind of monitor um, how that's going on. That being said, if you can identify specifically what nutrients you need to add to compensate, that would be one way to do it. Um, and because if you are doing no runoff and you do have some buildup, like you're saying, then uh, then there's some missing pieces in in that building box of that that plant trying to grow as best as possible. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to use runoff as our crutch to maintain all this. But in reality, in practicality, when we hit the actual grow space, runoff is our friend for modulating uh, how well our EC stacks. So unless you're coming into flower at a really low EC and you're struggling to stack it, you should be pushing a small amount of runoff at the end of your P1s. And that's just going to keep that you know stacking from getting dramatically higher day after day. We just want to kind of, we want to keep it in a range for each phase of steering. We don't want to stack it crazy high. We don't want to flush it out. You know, as with anything, when we make big changes, the plant struggles to respond to that. So it's just knocking time off of, you know, our time we actually are spending in perfect growing conditions or prime growing conditions and having the plant metabolize. Yeah. And so while we're on that too, I think, you know, one of the questions I get a lot of times is people um, scared of, you know, if their EC getting pretty high um, by nighttime or before the, the next irrigation in the next morning. Um, and so when we do talk about kind of EC stacking, usually we're talking about the, the nominal or the, say, the, the daily return of that EC after irrigation. And that's the number you want to be looking at when you're modulating the runoff. Um, the EC rise after your irrigation is is going to be a, a little bit more indicator um, inversely related to your drive axe and stuff. So um, don't necessarily get too worried if you do see your ECs rising up very quickly uh, on a on a day basis. Um, but if it is climbing uh, too rapidly for uh, you know day over day, then then you probably want to have just slightly more runoff. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And then you know. If you start looking at ranges of uh, plant toxicity versus availability in different nutrients, the tolerance is actually quite wide for where you can be fairly high EC and have access to these, and it actually doesn't hurt the plant. You know, it's more of an osmotic pressure situation rather than a toxicity, uh, particularly unless we're talking about nitrogen late in flower. Usually, um, the plant will put up with a lot more than we give it credit for. It's just after all these years of paying attention to runoff and not seeing what was going on in the root zone, we never saw those, you know, 22 DC swings, <laughs> you know, at seven in the morning, a few hours before you start watering. We just didn't see that in ripening before. All we saw was that runoff that came out, which is already, you know, diluted by the nutrient solution you're putting on it. Like we just, we just didn't have the visibility. I didn't for years and it blew my mind <laughs> when I put some sensors in and went, wow. We're not feeding that much. 
It's cool stuff. Yeah. Definitely helps having uh having a little bit of visibility on things that you can't really tell. Yeah, and you know, don't forget to look at your plants either. Like you might look at that and see, wow, this thing's hitting eighteen, but then you go look at it and finishing it's just beautiful. Healthy plant, you know. They they will really surprise you at what you can throw at them sometimes. Michael posted a couple of questions uh, while we were talking about this. How often would you recommend runoff testing? And do you recommend leach testing at all? Uh, every, what's, what are we talking for a difference between runoff and leach? Because usually leachate is going to be runoff um, from, from what I'm used to doing. Um, as far as I, I like to record it every day. Um, yep. But I am a more data is better if I didn't need the data. It's cheaper to throw it out than it is to try and recreate it um, in the next cycle. So I, I like to you know, have a catch cup under uh, one or a few plants in there, at least per strain. Um, see if you can get runoff volume and see if you can get pH and, and runoff EC. Um, to get used to using the EC in your substrate, you may you may retire from taking uh, runoff EC measurements, but but there's really no substitution for runoff volume and runoff pH um, on a daily basis if you can. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Paying attention to that runoff pH is very important. You know, especially if you're having any water quality issues or anything like that. Like having that runoff test and data to look back at and go, like, man. It's just one more metric to see everything that happened. And while you aren't going to be steering your whole crop based off runoff, it's still very valuable data. Michael clarified here, leach testing meaning more flushing the medium out with standard food to measure the internal EC and pH of the substrate. And so his original question is, do you, rec was rec do you recommend leach testing at all? I wouldn't. Not with our modern hydro substrates, you know, cocoa or rock wool, um, the information that you need can come just from a typical daily runoff. Yeah. To, in order to do an accurate leach test too, you basically better take a whole saw out there, drill a core out of one of your blocks, take it in and flush it with deionized water and see what you actually have there. That's, that's what we do in a soil lab. And that's, you know, what's going to actually give you the composition of what's in there or stick a sensor in it. See what your EC is looking like in there. Because that's, that's the other thing. Unless you're going to take time for R&D on some of these things, uh, certain things will be destructive. That's the reality. Like if you want a full clean soil analysis, you've got to send that to a lab. Herb Tittle Farms, you posted a comment. You want to unmute yourself and speak to it? Sure. That guy was talking about uh, EC buildup. And a few times when I've had my blocks build up too early, like through the stretch and I've let it build up way too early. It almost always seems like it's nitrogen that, that I get overwhelmed on. And mm -hmm. those particular phenols will just continue over stretching and then they lose all their bud structure. I've seen it happen two or three times. Absolutely. So nitrogen actually acts as a plant growth regulator in high enough concentrations, which can happen when you're building EC in the block. That's why, you know, when you get to mid flower, you're cutting a lot of nitrogen out of your feed schedule. So we don't want to push that super hard. And that can even lead to, uh, you know, if you run an early flower or a veg solution all the way through, you'll probably notice huge inner nodes, loose buds, fox tailing, even though it's only it 77 degrees in there. But yeah, that's literally because that is acting almost like oxen or any other plant hormone and driving growth. 
And the other side of that is that'll push other deficiencies. If you're running, you know, nitrogen too high, you'll you'll smack your head right into calcium deficiencies two weeks in. You'll <laughs> you'll see all these other problems arising from the fact that that nitrogen is just pushing the plant so hard, specifically in cell elongation and not division. So that's why you see your buds not getting bigger. The cells are stretching, but they're not dividing and turning into more flower. It's tough to recognize. And until I had the sensors in there, it was tough to even recognize because I had a couple of phenos that would stay looking perfectly healthy. No clawing, not too dark, no tip burn, no nothing. I couldn't tell they were over on anything until I stuck the sensors in there. And I'm man, I almost threw away two phenos. The sensors saved them for me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> made a huge difference. All I had to do was save some money on fertilizer. Yeah. But, <laughs> yep, that was but that's, and that's what's crazy is there's such a range in plant responses, you know, to different EC levels and different levels of different nutrients. Um, I mean, if anyone's ever grown in deep water culture, it's a great example of the fact that we can't actually push anything into the plant. We, we give it all, we put out the plate, it eats what it wants. That's, that's the reality. So. We, we just got to make sure it doesn't preferentially eat one thing too much. <laughs> Can't feed it too much nitrogen. And then, yeah, same thing. You want to make sure you're not running into those limiting factors. You'll end up in the same bad boat if you're low on nitrogen, too high on calcium. Everything plays together. For sure. I've been cutting the, uh, with the Athena. They run like 40, 60 or whatever, core to bloom. And now through week three, I, I, I cut it back to 2080. And then mm-hmm. sometimes by the end, I'll even cut it harder. So, and I'm much better results that way too. And letting, oddly enough, letting the pH run a little higher in the medium has helped prevent that from happening too. It's like, it doesn't want to absorb as much of the nitrogen. So yep. I, it's helped. It. Yeah. And if we actually, if you, I'm sure you've looked at that, that plant nutrient availability versus pH, that's one great way yeah. to modulate yeah. it. Like if you're like, Hey, I've got this feed solution. I don't have a lot of choices. I can up the pH and restrict that nitrogen uptake just a little bit. Yeah, for sure. It's helped a ton. Cool. Awesome. Glad you realized that on your own. (laughs) That's awesome, dude. Just through observation. Yeah. Awesome. Um, So Gas House, they had a second question. Um, The other question they asked was, during ripening, I'm noticing uneven ripening from tops to bottoms, even with the DLI of 65. Can we utilize crop steering to help with the process of evenly ripening our crop? Or would that be a nutritional issue? Uh, there could be a number of things into play here. Um, I, the first one in my mind would just be light penetration. Um, you know, the tops of your plants are the ones that are getting that 65 DLI. And so, if, you know, if we look at um, leaf area index would be the, the traditional metric that, uh, that gives you a number as far as, hey, this is how much light is being blocked from through the canopy, right, into those lower those lower segments. So, um, you know, how, how do you avoid that? It, there's a couple, you know, things in the industry, some under canopy lighting, some side lighting. I don't necessarily have much experience or um, any any verified research on you know, how that affects the plant growth, but uh, but light intensity would probably be the, the one that um, comes to mind as, as far as I know for ripening differential on the plant. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. Um, each bud, just like, say, a tomato or something, we need so much input in terms of light, water, and CO2 to build that, obviously, along with the rest of our nutrients. So those lower buds are not getting as much light. Like, effectively, we could say, all right, they're getting half the light. Theoretically, they're going to take almost twice as much time to actually ripen up 
They're just not going to grow as big. They're not going to be as mature. So in my experience, the best way to deal with that is prune hard and prune early. You know, get rid of that, that under foliage that you're not going to have or that you're going to end up throwing away. If you're pulling off buds at week three or four, doing your second cleanup, you're throw, I mean, you're just throwing away money that you put into growing those. Whereas if you could have pruned those up, you know, around flip, let's say, then you're not spending time flowering out and building up plant matter that you're going to throw away throughout the cycle. And obviously we have leaves that we're going to throw away at different points, but not investing the time into developing buds that we don't want is probably the best way to get around that. Yeah, just to justify pruning hard, that does mean maintaining a balance so that the plant still has enough. Um, you know, they're just like solar panels, right? These plants are absorbing light energy based on the amount of surface area that uh, is exposed to energy. So we've got photons hitting that plant surface, providing it the catalyst for the photosynthetic product or process, excuse me. And, and so you know, we don't want to strip past the point um, of reducing the trajectory of that plant growth. Uh, so it, it, is, it is a good balance um, just to justify the hard uh, value. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I don't like to scare people when I say that, but uh, it's hard to say that without having a picture in front of me to show you. But it is something you need to dial for each strain, and that's also sometimes why taking pictures in veg and anytime you do any defoliation and say, okay, I'm going to take pictures of this related to that run because I know a lot of people have experienced this. I have. When you grow the same strain like 30 or 50 times, you go, huh, it did that weird thing last spring. You guys remember, right? Like, it's doing that again. Well, no, I don't remember. Did you document it in Arroyo? Exactly. <laughs> so if you can have a picture to look back and go, okay, here's what's going on. Here's what we did. Here's how the plant's responding because your pruning techniques are going to change for every strain. You're going to grow that a few times and get a feel for how it grows, when you're going to time your second D-leaf, everything. So it, it's something you got to build in and really optimize, you know, each cultivar in your facility over time. But you're never going to get there without the data to look back at and influence your decisions for your next run. Um, Husky, who's on with us today, posted a comment. Husky, you want to unmute yourself and add to the conversation? Uh, what they posted was uh, under canopy lighting. There you are. Go for it. We can still have you muted. Hiya, uh, yeah, sorry about that. I just wanted to ask more on the uh, trichome ripeness. Uh, you mentioned different strains uh, need to be taken maybe at different times. Can you maybe talk about um, if clear is obviously too early and do you go for cloudy or do you go for really white trichomes? Do you go for any amber? Just that simple, really. Yeah, and you know, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a progression, right? So we're going to start with usually 100% clear trichomes is what that, that plant is at some point, you know, getting closer to the harvest um, date. Uh, a lot of people that do, you know, fresh frozen or some types of extracts um, do prefer to get a little bit earlier in that clear to cloudy um, duration. Uh, typically for, you know, flower market preferences are, are somewhere in that early amber stages. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the guys growing for bulk oil production, you're pulling it at six weeks because you can still get the oil yield that you want and you're going to, you know, formulate that into the product that you need. As far as flower goes, um, I think the best thing you can do is as you're ripening, hitting that point where you like, I might pull it today, look at it, 
take a sample, and if you've got the means, slowly test it over time and find out what day represents the product that you want to put out. Are you trying to put out, you know, because even a different strain, depending on harvest day, is going to have a slightly different terpene expression as far as levels of different terpene and then potency. So you want to dial that to what you want to put out and make sure you can repeat it. So as Jason was saying on flower, a lot of times it is more on the amber side. You know, go in and decide what level of amber do we want? What day are we going to pull? And then, you know, that's just another metric to make sure your consistent consistency stays there. And as, you know, Michael talked about, document it with your USB microscope, put it into Arroyo and say, here it, uh, day, day 60 for our OG Kush is, uh, you know, looks like this. Day 63 looks like this. And we know that, hey, we want to be at day 62 because last time we went just a little bit too long. Give yourself references. Give yourself, a, you know, basically a very complete digital grow journal of as many inputs as you can. So that's really the reason that, you know, we've worked to combine sensor data with manual entries, with notes, with tasking is because most all of those items affect the plant growth, right? And so sure we can be looking at sensor data, uh, but it really takes as much metadata attributing each cycle as possible in order to replicate productivity, to eliminate unintended variables cycle to cycle, and to get an idea of how you can make incremental steps for continuous improvement. Yeah, you summed it up right there, buddy. Thanks, guys. That was fantastic. Thanks for asking a question, Husky. Be sure to stick around after the broadcast. Um, I have another question uh, from Instagram, but also just telling our friends who are on with us today. It's not too late to get your question answered. Uh, this is the last question from Kush Enthusiast, who also asked a question earlier. Do you guys have any recommendations for collecting runoff for the purposes of analyzing the water when hand watering in cocoa? I don't have my phone with a picture on me. <laughs> Use a tray underneath of it. Yeah. Um, if you go to the hardware store and get a, you know, your basic plant tray full of empty starter cells so you can space it up off the bottom and have it easy to slide that tray out and tip it out. Because if you have it sitting just in the tray, you've got to have space for the water to fall into. Otherwise, it'll just wick back up into the pot as the plant uses it. So that's the biggest thing. Any, any way you can devise for spacing that up, uh, ice cube trays I've seen. <laughs> People can get creative out there, you know? And I, I guess one of the th things there as well is try and do a good practice um, of draining it every day you know so when if you skip a day now you're gonna your number is gonna be twice as much um you know if you didn't document it the day before or you forgot to document it but it did get dumped out then you know all of those can cause problems and so it's one of those things where your team um you know maybe marks it off somewhere so if it is a task get that task done in arroyo do the manual reading so that you have those numbers and you know that uh you know that your catch bucket got dumped out and your next day's reading is going to be exactly what happened in that 24-hour period absolutely and then on top of that like when you start to get in more precision go collect it after your p1s that's once a day go see what your runoff is after that irrigation event and you can really start dialing your uh your shot size and how often you're going to do it and start pairing that to different screens 
Um, if you let your runoff water sit there all day in an 80 degree environment with wind blowing, it might test a little hotter in both pH and DC just because some water's evaporated. But, you know, and when we're talking about 30 milliliters of water in there, 100, that's not very much. You can blow on it and that'll go away. Great. Amazing. Seth and Jason, what a great conversation. Thank you so much. We were on a little bit of a two-week break. It felt really good to be back with office hours today. Um, Michael, Turp, Turtle Farms, and Husky, if you could stick around for just one more minute. Um, I want to thank everyone who joined us for Office Hours Live this week. If you have any questions about Arroyo, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process, or any other topic you'd like covered in a future Office Hours session, please feel free to post it in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo.metergroup.com or send us a DM over Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance today a link to the video from today's discussion, and then we will also post it on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like and subscribe while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do share them with your community and spread the word. Thank you so much, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. See you all next week. Bye, guys. Till next week. Thank you. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.